Where's where's the inner sleeve to this record though, Jeremy? It's not in the, the jacket. Jeremy, the inner sleeve. Jeremy, the inner sleeve. Where is it? Where is it? Jeremy, Jeremy. buy that for a dollar a podcast about inexpensive common and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered i'm your host sean hartman and i'm joined by my regular co-host president of the midwestern division of the spirit of the law fan club jeremy ruggles thank you i've been big on cumins lately honestly yeah yeah but like what about actual like spirit of the law the presentation what do you like about his video series i like the intro with all the strange situations he cooks up Mm -hmm. within the aoe2 world yeah he really keeps it interesting for a informative youtube series on a 20 plus year old computer game that is strictly for the most nerdy amongst us it's you know surprisingly lacking in gatekeeping i would say Exactly. Anyone from beginner to extreme expert could pick up a little something. Yep. Add it to their game, you know. And we're also, of course, joined by co-vice chairman of the Defendants of Waterworld Society, Peter Cook. Oh, I'm on this podcast. I thought I was listening to one. (laughs) You are doing both, actually, if you think about it. Waterworld rules. Are you watching Waterworld Why We Record This? No, I just have water on my head and I'm drinking water. So it is kind of like water world. Staying hydrated and cool over here, boys. <laughs> True. Well, Peter, you brought us a record, right? I did. Did you receive it? Do you have it in your grips? I got it in my grips and it is sitting on the uh, the table. Mm-hmm. Is there a clever word for like a record player? Do they call it something cool? A turntable? That's not cool. You know what I mean. Uh, on the deck. deck. On, yeah. on the deck. We got the platter on the deck. Yeah, the slab. Yeah, ready to drop the needle in the groove, spin a few tunes. What are we about to drop the needle into the groove on, Peter? This would be a record by Johnny Hammond, and it's called Higher Ground. It came out on Kudu. The Kudu label in 1974. Sean's all about Kudu. I love the Kudu label. Standing right here looking at that that yellow designed label, the vinyl on the deck. I'm getting excited. I love anything Kudu, anything CTI, Creed Taylor. Thank you for all the music. Peter, confirm or deny this album is all songs written by Anthony Kiedis of Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, yeah, because the Red Hot Chili Peppers covered Stevie Wonder's Higher Ground, right? Is that where you're going with that? Yeah. <laughs> Is that the joke? I could, I could s- Wait till you hear Johnny Hammond do Californication in 1974. <laughs> it's going to fucking blow your mind. Yeah. Yeah, he was like 25 years ahead on that one. Mm-hmm. I'd like to start by playing. It is a cover, but it's not a Red Hot Chili Peppers cover. It's the song Catch My Soul 
Let's start right there. Side one, track one. Hit them with it. It's not Soul to Squeeze, which is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. original version of that song was from a musical loosely adapted from Shakespeare's Othello called Catch My Soul, produced by Jack Good. And then this same year, 1974, was made into a film directed by Patrick McGowan. I was wondering, you said this was a cover, and I was like, what is yeah. this a cover of? Yeah, I wasn't familiar with this song going into this either. That was all news to me. And... Yeah, Patrick McGowan directing a movie that this was in called, you know, and this was the title track from it. This album consists of four tracks, three of which are covers and one is a Johnny Hammond original. And we'll get to that one eventually. And that first song was also co-written by Tony Joe White, who was like a a rock and roll guy. His hit was uh, Poke Salad Poke Annie. Poke Salad yeah. Annie, yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a strange one. I, I'll need to look more into this whole catch my soul thing. I think it's one of those byproducts of the era that hasn't really carried over into being something people talk about now. Well, regardless, they sure pulled off a funky as hell variation of it. Agreed. Yeah. You feeling that one? Steve Gadd on drums, killing it. Man, I love the drum sound on that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of players on this and we'll uh, we'll talk about them in a moment. It's hard to say what number album this is, 
for soul jazz and hard bop organist Johnny Hammond, as he was very prolific and collaborated with a lot of musicians. Mm-hmm. According to Wikipedia, it's his 29th as leader, but who really knows? It's There is a lot to dig, in, dig into with him. Um, I don't know, are, were either of you really familiar with Johnny Hammond specifically before I suggested this one? Yeah, I own, I think, four records by him, but I don't own this one yet. Okay. Um, There's definitely a name that I will always buy if i don't have it already and it's affordable how about you jeremy well you see this one in dollar bins a lot probably because he made like 30 something well he made a ton more than that records right yeah yeah he, yeah and he, and he was popular so enough of these were produced that they're his albums are heavily in circulation and i mean the whole kudu cti catalog you can get almost everything on there for pretty cheap so it's yeah I can't say enough good things about that family of labels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was vaguely familiar with him just because I enjoy a good organ jazz jam. Uh, I've just got one of his records, though, in my collection, but I really should get more. He was kind of, in my brain, he was like a tertiary kind of figure in the organ jazz world. Yeah, and it can get a little... He's one of the bigger names. I, I can't remember if I name-dropped him in a recent episode talking about soul jazz but i think i did yeah but i mean he's, he's like definitely like one of the big five of soul jazz especially organ jazz and he delivers i haven't really heard a bad johnny hammond record yet honestly yeah yeah if you didn't name drop him in an episode you probably brought him up at some point in conversation recently <laughs> as well i know most of our conversations nowadays do happen on this podcast but <laughs> right <laughs> It can get confusing with him because his name changes throughout his career. He was born John Robert Smith, and some of his early releases are credited to Johnny Smith, but there was also a jazz guitarist named Johnny Smith, so he started going by Johnny Hammond Smith because he played the Hammond B3 organ. And by the time of this release, he's simply Johnny Hammond. And of course, not to be confused with John Hammond, the record producer, nor John Hammond, the owner of Jurassic Park. <laughs> I think there is John P. Hammond, who's like the son of John Hammond, who's a blues guitarist. There's a lot of right. there's a lot of John Hammonds out there. <laughs> Generic names that are similar to each other, and also you know family dynasties of music. Yeah, <laughs> too many. So I picked this album because you guys kind of said it. You you see it around in dollar bins, and it's a good groover. You can definitely put this on and chill out. Now, I'm not recommending listening to digital music on a vinyl podcast, but yesterday my wife Ellen and I learned on a countryside drive that if you play this album on Spotify and then let the Spotify radio recommendations take over after the album finishes, you will get an amazing soul jazz mix. The algorithm will be kind to you. I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) This was arranged and conducted by Bob James, this album. Love Bob James. The smooth, oh my God. The smooth jazz he's master. So cool. Oh, he's so good. I've been a fan of his since I was 14 years old, so I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I got into him pretty early, too. That was like one of the earlier jazz names. I was like, I like this guy, and I think I like almost everything that he's a part of. Yeah. What's the CTI Kudu label that he's on every record? This is all good stuff. Yeah, it was around that age that I started watching that show Taxi. It was on Nick at Night at the time, and he did the theme for that, which is his song Angela from the Touchdown album. And he had worked with Johnny Hammond before this on the album Wild Horses Rock Steady. 
And at this point in time, Bob James was mainly working as an arranger and sideman and was just establishing himself as a solo artist. He obviously did have some stuff that came out. I think his ESP disc album was the Bob James Trio. That was Explosions. That was probably about 10 years before this. Yeah. Uh, but as far as kind of what he's now known for, he was just establ- getting established as a solo artist then. Um, the, the following year after this, he played on Roberta Flack's Feel Like Making Love, which we did an episode on previously. And on this one, aside from composing and arranging, he's credited as electric piano, Yamaha, organ, and Mellotron. As a ranger, he's in conductor. There's trombones and trumpets, French horn, bassoon, clarinet, oboe, and alto flute all happening throughout this record. So I think he's responsible for arranging and conducting those musicians. But I wanted to talk about some of the other players. And if either of you noticed some significant names amongst those players, please feel free to say so. But there's a lot of players on this. And we heard a little tenor sax in that opening cut from Joe Henderson. And he worked with tons of people, including Grant Green, McCoy Tyner, Alice Coltrane, Donald Byrd, Ricky Lee Jones, and Herbie Hancock, including the soundtrack to the the film Blow Up, the Antonioni film. Mm-hmm. And is that a name familiar to either of you, Joe Henderson? I got to say, Joe Henderson is one of my absolute favorite saxophone players and definitely one of the most underrated saxophone players of this era. Mm. I mean, the, the people who know will talk endlessly about how good he was, but I feel like you just don't hear his name come up as often as it should. Um, I particularly love the stuff he did with Alice Coltrane. Amazing player. Okay, that's great to hear because I really like his playing on this and I didn't know his name going into this. There you go. I didn't know him either, but when I was looking up information on this, there was a forum with this like total Johnny Hammond nerd guy who (laughs) like on an internet forum that was probably like organplayersrs.com or something. (laughs) And he was making this mega post about everything about Johnny Hammond. And he's like, in particular, I recommend the album Higher Ground because Joe Henderson's on it. There you go. And I was like, whoa. The legend. Must be serious. There's a few other names on here that I'm definitely going to want to shout out to. So I'll I'll wait to see if you bring them up, Peter, and then I can talk about them if you don't. All right. Well, up next... On bass, we have Grammy Award winner Ron Carter. He came to fame as part of the Miles Davis Quintet, along with the aforementioned Herbie Hancock, as well as Wayne Shorter and Tony Williams. And Ron Carter played as a sideman on a lot of 60s Blue Note recordings and was the bassist on Roberta Flack's first take. True. And is probably the greatest bassist of all time. Let's be real. <laughs> so that's another like, one you who, were going to shout out. <laughs> who's who's better than Ron Carter? He's on, apparently he's on like 2,200 different albums. Yeah. yeah. He's one of the most recorded bassists of all time. And again, probably the greatest. Yeah. I couldn't even start with a list on him because it was pretty much impossible. I was either going to name very few or all of them. <laughs> so I, I decided to just make him sound, you know, like a big deal and and you're helping so i'm glad to hear that i don't think he played on a bad record ever either 
And if he well, did, I have yet to hear it. 2,200 albums. There's, There's got to be a bad no, one in there, Sean. There isn't. Have you listened to all 2,200? No, but fucking find me one that's bad. I'm gonna. That's my goal now. Good luck. <laughs> then we'll check back in next episode and see. Yeah, we'll check back in like three or four years. <laughs> You're like, well, this one's just okay. Does that count? <laughs> uh, okay, well... You mentioned this guy, Sean, so I'm sure you're excited about him on drums, is Steve Gadd, who was, uh, yeah. yeah, he's worked with everyone. I don't, I don't know a ton about him, but he's definitely one of those guys that I've started to notice. There's just been a handful of times where I put on a record like, fuck, the drums are good. Steve Gadd, all right, that's got to keep remembering that name. Yeah, he's just a few names for him. Uh, he's worked with Simon and Garfunkel. Kate Bush, John Bon Jovi, and Chick Corea. I thought that was just a, a strange combination of mention to give Wild. you an idea of the range. One of those does not belong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a name I was hoping to never say on this podcast, but I just did it. Yeah, here we are. Here we are. The other drummer. Yes. Seems very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Who is the other drummer, Jeremy? Oh, a little Jack Dejanet from mm. just last week. Yep, yep. He, the Shredder. He is on. He's on one song on this, and we will get to that one. Actually, I think we're going to get to all of them because there's only four songs. So that's our average feature amount. So we will shout him out when we get there again. So Steve Gadd's on all the others on drums, and yeah, I, I guess uh, Jack Dejanet is also an accomplished pianist as well. He can also rip a good piano. Far out. That's that's really common for jazz artists. I would almost say it's less common for a professional jazz artist to not play piano at all. I mean, a lot of the guys wouldn't like record with it, but it was a very common instrument to have a basic knowledge on for composing and just general musical communication with the other artists. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's it's kind of like almost the the bridge between a lot of the instruments. Right. Well. There's one more towering figure that we would be remiss if we did not mention, and that's the person on guitar. Old Georgie? George Benson, you got it. The uh, next selection features a, an incredible solo by him. We're going to have to start a little ways into the track to get to that. And the next selection is the title track, which is written by an artist that we can't seem to avoid on this podcast, but that's totally fine because it's Stevie Wonder. So let's listen to George Benson's guitar solo on Higher Ground. Let's do that. I'm ready for that. Thank you. 
I just want to say I'm so tired of people either not knowing about or just totally shitting on George Benson. And that solo right there is 100% the reason why. <laughs> what the fuck was that? That was so good. He is like one of the greatest guitar players ever. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, even, even though, you know, I listened to it several times preparing for this, I swear it gets better every time I listen to because he's doing so much in there that somehow compliments and rearranges a very simple groove that they're doing like he just goes so many different directions but it all comes together it, it literally has every element of a guitar solo that i like there's space between the notes it's super funky it complements the song it tells a story and it has the most inventive and just weird fucking licks in there that i literally have no idea how he did it but it still again serves the song perfectly he's it's so good oh my god yeah yeah and those crazy fast licks for our listeners who aren't guitar players usually when you hear people like going off so fast like that there's a ton of distortion because that hides like the picking between each note so they're able to get going faster without having to pick out each note, but he what, just... What he's actually saying is that Eddie Van Halen sucks because it's all just the effects pedals and he doesn't have an ounce of the soul that George Benson has. <laughs> yeah, it's just, when he does those fast runs, it's like, how is that physically doable? Because he's playing those giant hollow bodies. Those are not easy guitars to shred on. No, yeah. no the action you, is... You shouldn't be... High on those, aren't isn't it? That like They have high action. Usually. Yeah. Yeah, and he's probably playing thick guitar, you know, jazz strings. Like, basically, you shouldn't be able to do the things he's doing on guitar. <laughs> it's basically what we're saying to our <laughs> listeners right now. Yeah, and there, there's evidence of it, though. He did it, and it's just, whew. yeah. I'm glad that you guys appreciated that as much as I hoped you would. Yeah, and he does that on, like, all the records that he's on. And he's on a lot of CTI albums, and... The ones where he's a band leader are also incredible too. And the non-CTI George Benson stuff, it gets cheesy. He made a lot of money making some very smooth songs with a lot of crossover appeal. But even those are good. People need to dig into George Benson. That's all I'm saying. But let's keep talking about Johnny Hammond while we're here. Sure thing. In fact, I think it's time for some biographical details. Hit me with it. So we mentioned he was born John Robert Smith. 1933 is his year of birth in Louisville, Kentucky. That's the location. He taught himself to play piano. He grew up in a house with no heat. In the winter, he would put on an overcoat and a hat and wear gloves with the fingertips cut off so he could still practice piano. And early on, he worked with a number of artists who are, seem to be names of note. Etta Jones, not to be confused with Etta James, is that a yeah she's a kind of a big deal jazz singer but if you're not into the world of jazz singers you probably wouldn't have heard that name before okay houston person is that a name that you know yeah he's a cool soul jazz uh saxophone player who's been on a lot of different records as a, either a leader or a side man okay and another one that stood out is michigan's own birdie green he worked with her as well 
Not familiar, actually. Okay. I didn't, I, I was hoping that you would know about all these artists. So <laughs> she is from Michigan. Look up more about Birdie Green, uh, listeners. I, I should have done that in advance, but <laughs> there were just so many names associated with this, uh, you know, yeah. on the record alone. But his career took off when he started accompanying singer Nancy Wilson, not the heart guitarist. This is the <laughs> singer who sang the song, You Don't Know How Glad I Am. Are either of you familiar with Nancy Wilson? Uh, Dollar Bin Staple, for sure. But I, I don't listen to her music that often. It's a little smooth and overproduced for my taste. But I am sure that there are some Nancy Wilson sleepers out there that I'm not hip to yet. Yeah, I listened to a number of tracks by her today, and I really liked it. He did write a few songs for her and, and worked with her on and off over the years. So he ended up landing a record deal with Prestige and released a series of albums through that label in the 1960s before signing with Kudu, which is the label of Creed Taylor, who is also listed as the producer on this. And I think CTI, that's Creed Taylor's main label, right? Yeah, CTI is the main label. Kudu was launched as a subsidiary to CTI. And the idea was that they were going to try and put some of their more commercial friendly artists on here. So, you know, Johnny Hammond was a, a bigger soul jazz organist. So that made sense. And then um, I'm not positive if I'm pronouncing the name right, but Idris Muhammad, who was one of the prestige house drummers and was a, a big uh, soul jazz drummer, did some records on there. And then Esther Phillips the like blues soul crossover singer was on there. And then the Grover Washington Jr. Records were on Kudu as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll be talking about that in just a moment. I had actually, I'll admit, Sean, you're more the jazz guy than I am on this podcast. I had never heard of Creed Taylor before doing research for this. And he was actually, he's a pretty major figure in jazz. He's the person who signed John Coltrane to impulse. Yeah, he's a legend for sure. And he also produced the Getz Gilberto album that has the girl from Impanima on it for Verve yep. Records. Yep. I hope I said all that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Getz and Gilberto. Yep. So Johnny Hammond Smith's first album for Taylor's Kudu label, 1971's Breakout, which was also the first album, Kudu album, that featured Grover Washington Jr. as a sideman before he launched his career as a solo artist. And Johnny really pushed for Grover. And Creed Taylor, the label head, wanted a more established saxophonist like Hank Crawford. And the compromise is that both Hank Crawford and Grover Washington Jr. played on Breakout, Johnny Hammond Smith's first album for Kudu. And it seems that uh, Grover Washington Jr. and Johnny Hammond Smith were very good friends. In fact, Johnny Hammond Smith's uh, widow has a number of stories about uh, Grover Washington Jr. You know, being a regular part of their lives, very good friends much later on in uh, in Hammond's life. So they definitely stayed tight after this period, and it's it's really cool to know that uh, he was instrumental in getting Grover Washington Jr involved with kudu because i feel like those are some of the most incredible records oh yeah definitely and, i mean grover washington jr especially is you know an iconic artist from that time period that was one of those guys that especially in black communities from what i've been told pretty much everybody had grover washington jr records that's just like what was on the turntable during that time period yeah 
especially you know if there was a little bit of uh, a mood that needed to be created, maybe some candlelight, maybe a, a nice evening in with mom and dad. Kids are asleep. Put on that Grover Washington Jr. record. Where well, where are you going with this, Sean? Get a few more kids in the house, you know? <laughs> Sean. Quiet storm is in effect here. <laughs> That's right. I'm scandalized. Those records were tools as well. <laughs> so Creed Taylor was fond of Johnny's energy on the organ, and he likened it to a swinging freight train. During his time with Kudu and CTI, Hammond dropped Smith from his name. Then he, That's why he's just Johnny Hammond on this release. And starting in the mid-70s, Johnny Hammond began recording for the Milestone label. Is that one either of you are familiar with? That's another label that I'll buy anything on. <laughs> and it has also been shouted out by Mad Lib. Oh, well, that's the uh, approval. That's the only approval you need right there. Mm-hmm. And we'll stop there because I'd like to play another track. We're going to do Big Sir Sweet, which is the only track that was composed by Johnny Hammond to appear on this release. That is side two, track two. And I'd like for both the co-hosts and the listeners to pay close attention to the bass break at about nine, ten seconds in and see if you recognize it. We'll talk about it when we come back. All right. In 1992, the bass break at nine seconds in 
was sampled by both the Beastie Boys on their album Check Your Head and Dr. Dre on The Chronic. The same exact uh, clip. <laughs> I used to always... I knew it sounded familiar. Yeah. I used to always make the Tupac connections. Apparently now I'm just bringing albums that Dr. Dre sampled on The Chronic. <laughs> because the, I'd be okay if you talked about more Beastie Boys stuff too, for the record. Yeah. Yeah, we could get into more Beastie Boys stuff. I actually am trying slowly to collect every album that was sampled on paul's boutique <laughs> but, oh that's fun but it's like that's a fun thing to do it's like it's a, a lot of records though it's 150 <laughs> albums or something like that <laughs> idris muhammad is one of them Mm-hmm. i bet there's actually i've been learning a lot just by doing that but yeah and the other parts of that track we just listened to were sampled by Gangstar and Black Sheep about the same time, 91, 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. this one, this track has a lot of history of being sampled in hip hop. You guys have any other thoughts about that one? I think it's, you know, it's the only original composition on here. I think it, it stands out as uh, feeling a little more realized as a composition versus kind of them just grooving on something. Yeah, I agree. There was a certain energy to it that was a little different. And I I love the bass break, but I also just loved when the organ first came in on there. It was just so powerful, you know, like a swinging freight train. <laughs> yeah, that organ is lively and energetic. And I think, like, you see organ records constantly everywhere in dollar bins. And nobody's trying to get organ music anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just our, especially in like white people world, like organ is a dour church instrument. Right. (laughs) And you see a record with organ and you're like, oh, boring. But that's like lively and far out that we just heard. Sure. And even a lot of organ jazz gets really cheesy. It's an instrument that's very easy to sound like circus music, (laughs) you know? It can it can be really grating to listen to organ music at times, but when it's done well, oh my god, it's so funky. There's a reason why the organ was a hugely popular instrument back in the day. You know, across all demographics of music and multiple genres, people were playing organ, and it just you don't see that anymore, which is fine. But boy, is there some good music to discover. So, Peter, I've I've got a I've got a question for you though, along the lines of. Names of people involved with this record that I want to make sure you talk about. Are we going to talk about Rudy Van Gelder at all? Did you research him? No, I remember that name. I was going to mention that that was the track that we just listened to that featured Jack Dejanet on drums. Right, right. But no, tell me. Tell me about Rudy. So Rudy Van Gelder, Jeremy and I were just discussing this during the break, but he is... Probably the most legendary name, especially in the world of jazz, when it comes to engineering and producing. There are a lot of people that will specifically collect just records that were produced or engineered by Rudy Van Gelder. He did the large majority of the Blue Note catalog and the large majority of the CTI Kudu catalog. And part of why these records sound so good is because Rudy Van Van Gelder was just better than everybody else and making these instruments and these bands sound incredible. And Jeremy, you said you did some research specifically about that a little bit. I was reading a paper on uh, the history of like organ trios and organ combos in jazz. 
And specifically, this guy was extremely good. He was like kind of revered as the only guy who knew how to record organ and make it sound really good. And the author of the paper linked like him no longer working in the like jazz world to the end of like jazz organ music. <laughs> like <laughs> it, uh, they stopped trying to record it because other engineers just couldn't do it as well. Wow. So he was a real valuable asset to. Yeah. Uh, there, there's also something in the super nerdy record collecting circles where on the records that he oversaw the mastering on as well, he would sign the dead wax of the record, which is the um, non-playing grooves between the music and the label of a vinyl where they'll have little numbers and stuff etched in there to talk about the pressing or which plant it was pressed at. And the early blue note pressings that he oversaw, he there was a little symbol that looked like an ear and then an RVG next to it. So oftentimes the uh, value of a blue note record is like doubled or tripled or more if it has the rvg ear on it because again you know what? his technique is just so revered in in the record collecting and audiophile worlds you you guys are gonna have to look for me because you have the copy of the album there jeremy um it's not there did so, no, <laughs> i just no, no, no. looked while sean no, no. was talking about no it. no no you no, no <laughs> did somebody write rvg on the paper sleeve that the record oh. is in did someone write rvg on that and like pen on the front or the back let me see like, like in the on the papers the inner sleeve oh the inner sleeve the oh. inner sleeve oh no it is on here it says reg oh mm, i don't though when i looked closer on the record the rvg is actually in the groove there yep there you go how you know he was a part of it from start to finish i was thinking maybe the uh person who owned the collection this was in was marking up uh rvgs on on the the sleeves or something but it's reg that's, that's on possible there. okay from from what i understand part of the idea behind the cti record label is that creed taylor who had been in the industry for a long time basically just wanted to hire all the best musicians he had worked with and kind of revitalize their careers and it was like an interesting collective approach, too, because all these guys would work on each other's records and just kind of trade off who was the leader and the sideman on these albums. So there's a level of quality with these releases from this label that you don't get on as many other labels because, you know, this was more of a combined team effort. Everybody was working together to make sure that every release on this label was just a total banger. I noticed that this one was cut in two nights on halloween and november 1st 1973 so they just cranked this one out but obviously yeah it's, you know it's very together hell yeah all right one more real quick are you going to talk about john faddis nope do tell <laughs> uh john faddis is definitely one of my favorite kind of underrated jazz guys he is also part of the cti crew so you see him on there a bunch his record as a band leader incredible also that's Mad Lib's uncle. Holy shit. Yep. Far out. Yep. Mad Lib definitely came from a musical family, which is why both him and his brother are notable producers slash MCs. And yeah, they have, he also specifically has sampled a lot of CTI related stuff because his uncle's on a lot of that music. Well, yeah. Mad Lib has like encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> of music. 
So, yeah, especially jazz. So yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess I didn't really know his background, so there you go. Bringing it all together. Yep. So listen for the trumpet on here. It's killing it. Yeah, we got it. There were so many players of the horns and the woodwinds that it got to a point where I was like, hopefully Sean will know who to, who to bring up of all these people. And sure enough. And, and you know, there's some names on here that I'm not familiar with that I'm sure have like amazing legacies and association that I'm missing. So it's like, no matter how much research you do into record collecting and, and have all of that, there's still so much more to be discovered. It's fun. Yeah. We encourage you listeners to do more, but we'll try, you know, we try to cover all the, the what we think are the basics here. <laughs> so, well, thank you guys for, for bringing that extra information. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you want to talk about? Well, a little more about Johnny. Beginning in 1987, Johnny taught jazz classes as artist in residence at California Polytechnic University. And it was there that he met his wife, Cheryl. And they were married in 1988. They ended up having three children together, but sadly, he passed away from cancer only nine years later in 1997 at the age of 63. And I really wasn't that familiar with Johnny Hammond Smith going into this. He's a name that I don't think is brought up a lot now, but it seems that people alive during the time he was active think of him as legendary. Absolutely. I was just talking to my father-in-law earlier and mentioned this, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah the organ player? Oh, yeah, you know, massive. And I'm, So I'm glad that uh, you guys were enthused about doing this record as well. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about a, a lot of names, but and we've, you know, covered a number of soul jazz records lately, but did either of you think of any comparable records to look for? So the, the John, Johnny Hammond records that I also own, I have his 1978 album, Don't Let the System Get You, on Milestone. And again, Milestone is a label that you can pretty much buy anything on. That's a really, really cool label that's worth checking out. And then I have his 72 Kudu album, Wild Horses Rocksteady. That one rules. It's, it's very similar to this one. So if you like this record, definitely check out that one. And then I also just picked up one of his last prestige albums called Here It Tis from 1970. And that one slaps real hard too. Yeah, and there's some comparable jazz organ guys from this time that we've already mentioned before. But mostly, you know, buy anything on the Kudu and CTI labels. Like, it's all good. Some of it's, you know, some of it's a little cheesier than others. Like the Diodato stuff is not quite as cool, but it's still interesting if you like fusion jazz. Very cool. Yeah, or if you want to go back, you'll find like Jimmy Smith. Uh, you'll find his records around, and you know he was a huge inspiration, obviously to this, and really kind of took the jazz organ into the forefront. So if you if you're digging on this jazz organ and want to know like more where it came from, that's a good way backwards to go from here. And also, I mean, we've talked about Ramsey Lewis a few times on the program. He's got, you know, he's not an organist, but it's a similar interesting take on different kinds of soul jazz that are always worth checking out for sure. Grover Washington Jr., who we mentioned. Hubert Laws is another interesting CTI guy that's really, really easy to find his stuff. Uh, he was a flute player and had some, a lot of like classical and jazz crossover. That's a really interesting thing to explore. Cannonball Adderley 
is another really, really cool soul jazz guy who got his start early on, you know, playing with Miles Davis and these big, more traditional bop and cool jazz stuff. And then as he moved into the soul jazz, it was really interesting because it was highly informed by, you know, a lot of the music that happened before. And also he worked a lot with David Axelrod, which is pretty rad. Have either of you heard of the Blackbirds? I love the Blackbirds so much. Oh my God, that band is so cool. That was one of the ones that came on the Spotify playlist that was based on this album yesterday. And it was one of the, just immediately just struck me as just phenomenal. And I really need to look more into them. I don't think I'm familiar. Yeah, they were a group started by Donald Byrd, which is why Blackbirds is spelled that way. It's named uh, after him. Ah, uh, gotcha. He, yeah, they were students of his or he was kind of like a mentor and kind of helped launch their career so they were you know a funk band that was highly informed by jazz which is that's a winning combination in my book (laughs) do either of you know what's going on on the cover of this album is it like a burner on a stove or a stoplight i haven't figured it out yet i don't know um i wonder if that's a pete turner photograph yep it is (laughs) Um, i think we we mentioned that on the um West Montgomery episode that that is a famous and influential modern style photographer who did the artwork for, I think every CTI and Kudu release, as far as I know, at least the vast majority of them. Very cool. Yeah. I'm just not sure what that is, but yeah, he was kind of famous for taking pictures of kind of normal subjects, but in very interesting ways, either like interesting angles or highly stylized well, with the West Montgomery one, the cigarette butts in the ashtray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good comparison. But that's that's part of what makes the whole CTI thing so cool is the uniformity of design and players and forward-thinking music. Truth. Yeah, very cool. I'm, I'm glad that you know so much about this label, Sean. <laughs> one of my favorites, Yeah, if you couldn't tell already. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think that we've basically said everything I planned on saying and you guys brought a whole lot more so again much appreciated i this is stuff i'm still learning about and um i'd like to go out on the version of gershwin's summer time that appears on this album summer is winding down and the living has definitely not been easy and <laughs> <laughs> this this version of goes into on the album, it goes into The Ghetto by Donny Hathaway. It's a mashup of Summertime and The Ghetto. It's interesting. Yeah, but that's yeah, that, I'd like to go out on that, and that's about all I have to say. You guys got anything else? Just listen to more jazz. There's so much good stuff out there. I want to say thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Peter Cook. Thank you for listening to another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. If you like us and would like to help us, one of the best ways you can do that is to leave a review. Just say a little whatever, you know, say what you think, get your opinion heard. 
We actually do look at them when people review, so leave us a review. In particular, Apple reviews help us the most as far as letting other people find us. So if you want to help us be found, leave an Apple review. Not like Macintosh or Honeycrisp, though. Thank you.